Hello. This is Brenda, but do you see me? Nice. Yay! I don't see you, but yay! <sighs> we got you, that's good. Bonjour, everybody. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem, and this is Native Lights Bidapi, where we connect with our neighbors from around Minnesota during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, just checking in, you know, during this time where we're all isolated in our own little nests. Totally. I love how you said nest. (laughs) It's becoming more and more of a nest as it goes on, actually. (laughs) So today we are talking with Brenda Child, who actually happens to be... Auntie Brenda. She's married to our uncle, Steve Primo. Yep. And she's also the Northrop Professor of American Studies and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. And she's a citizen of the Red Lake Nation. So how are you guys doing during this whole thing? We're doing pretty good. We came up, decided to come up to Bemidji for a while. So we've been here for a few days and it's very quiet up here. So it's kind of nice. And more specifically, like how has the whole situation affected your daily life? It hasn't affected my daily life too much, I don't think, because I have a non-teaching semester. So all my colleagues are teaching their classes online. So I think it's affecting everybody else a lot more than it's affecting me, other than just the normal social distancing. Have to like try to avoid people, get your six feet of distance. Yeah. Like that. I noticed today, I actually did go in the grocery store today in Bemidji, and I noticed that people, if you went down an aisle, the person in the aisle left. (laughs) So (laughs) I think people are social distancing. Nice. So I just thought because of the situation that we're in and your research on the jingle dress and its origins, I thought it relates to our times right now. Sure. Well, a number of years ago, I got interested in thinking about the history of the Ojibwe jingle dress dance tradition. Of course, like other Ojibwe people, I'd grown up knowing about it because my Mm -hmm. grandmother at Red Lake when I was growing up was a jingle dress dancer. And when I was a kid, it was a tradition I mostly associated with older women. Now, I know you are younger, but when I was a kid, like in the 60s and 70s, it was something practiced a lot more by older women than younger women. And so I always knew about it. I knew it was a healing tradition, and I knew it was an important part of my grandmother's identity, uh, who was a jingle dress dancer, an Ojibwe language speaker from the Red Lake Reservation. Her name was Jeanette Aganash. And so Years later, I started to think about, well, what is the history of the jingle dress dance? I was interested more broadly in women's um, experience of working as healers. And then I started thinking about the jingle dress dance in this context. And so the first thing I did was go into photograph collections of the U.S. and Canada to try to find early images of the jingle dress. And I was sort of surprised that I could not find a single photograph of what we would call a jingle dress before circa 1920 in the United States or Canada. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And that tells me, of course, that it emerged around circa 1920. But it really wasn't until I was home at Red Lake and people were telling the story of the jingle dress dance, the story of the little girl who falls very ill, her father's worried 
that she's going to die and he makes the jingle dress or the dresses made for her and she recovers her health. And I know as a historian that the big flu epidemic of 1918-19 had a very devastating effect on American Indian people. It was very widespread in the Great Lakes. And so I just put these things together, historical documents with Ojibwe stories, with um, the photographs is really what led me to conclude that this all came from our last global epidemic of a century ago. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, what are those takeaways, maybe, that we can apply to our current lives? Yeah, so even a century ago, with World War One and the circulation of people around the globe, to think that that epidemic reached remote communities in Ojibwe country, what it says to me is that we're sort of all in this together. And that's how we should look at the world today. We have our own unique cultural responses to things that happen, but yet we're part of a broader, uh, a broader experience. And because the jingle dress tradition arose at a time when ritualistic dancing was actually being suppressed on Indian reservations in the United States, um, I always look at the jingle dress as being kind of a radical tradition in its origins. It was used in Idle No More in Canada. Jingle dress dancers were at Standing Rock. It's still being used to empower women today, even though it's moved out of our own Ojibwe communities um, kind of across the country. But I did hear that just this week in Red Lake, they were calling jingle dress dancers for a healing dance um, the other morning when they were having a kind of sunrise ceremony. And I thought, this is still something that Ojibwe people look to in a kind of an empowering way, because we know that Ojibwe people believe in the healing power of music and dance. And so those performative traditions or art are very important in times like this. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah. Totally. I love that message, yeah, for the current times. I mean, it's just a beautiful representation of how we're so connected. Um, I think that was really well stated. I'll just say one more thing. Historians always say that that big epidemic was so devastating that we don't have a strong historical memory of it in the United States. That is, it was so tough on people that maybe when it was over, they wanted to just forget about it and move on. And that pandemic was especially devastating because young people were the victims. Older people are sort of the victims in this new pandemic. And I think that's why it was especially horrifying to people that young people in the prime of their lives died in this particular um, pandemic a century ago. So when historians say we don't have a strong historical memory of this, I always say, except for American Indians, Because every time we see the jingle dress dance performed in powwows today, we're remembering that little girl a century ago who survived um, the epidemic of 1918-19. Do you have any more on like how the flu epidemic impacted tribes in Minnesota? Well, I first read about it really when I was writing my first book, which is about government boarding schools, because a lot of the kids in government boarding schools were very affected. You can imagine why. People lived and worked very closely together. So that's where I first came across stories about the big flu epidemic of 1918-19. 
it was bad here in Ojibwe country, but it was also uh, affected tribes all over the country. And I remember reading, um, I'm not sure if they what their name was at the time, but what we would call the Indian Health Service physicians were out in the Southwest. And they said that the Pueblo people were very affected by the epidemic as well. So I think it was pretty widespread in North America among American Indian and Canadian communities. So we talked to dad and he talked about hearing stories from Grandpa Bill about kids coming back from boarding schools with bad lungs because of the coal-fired heating. Huh. Have you heard anything about that? Actually, it's funny that you mentioned this, but I remember reading, um, it was kind of an oral history that was done with an Ojibwe man at Red Lake who had been a student at the Wapaden boarding school in the early 20th century. And he talked about how he had transferred from another boarding school in Wisconsin to Wapaden. And um, what he said is that he was the person who kept the furnaces going throughout the influenza pandemic of 1918-19. Because when he arrived at the school, he said everyone was sick. The students were all in bed. And so he kept the furnaces going. And he said he had been trained how to do that at his prior boarding school. His name was Alex Everwind. He was from Red Lake. And I can remember him, you know, when I was a girl, I remember him being part of the community. And he said, because two of his sisters had died of tuberculosis around this time, and he had just a small family, it was just he and his two sisters, he was very worried for his parents, right, that he was going to also die in the flu epidemic. But I remember Alex Everwind said, and maybe this is kind of words of wisdom to all of us, he was worried that he was going to get the flu, and his attitude was, if I get it, I get it. And he said, but I never got it. Wow. Hmm. Thanks for recounting that. We don't have much time left. I wanted to get your suggestions. What would you suggest people, you know, read during these extended times at home? You know, because, you know, we're all practicing our social distancing right now. Yeah, I wish I knew I could recall right now the author's name, but I really like the novel. I think it was called The Last Town on Earth. And it was about a town in the Pacific Northwest. And um, he lived in maybe like a very small lumber town, the main character. And the flu epidemic was all around them and raging and everyone knew people were dying. And the, the town made a decision that they were going to quarantine themselves completely, that no one would get past the entrance. And so it happened that a soldier, someone still in their World War I uniform, came and they found him in a like a shack or a building right at the entrance to their town and he was off obviously suffering from the influenza and so they have to make a decision about what to do do we take in this soldier or do we stick by the terms of our strict quarantine and hopefully save our town The book, as it evolved, it was about the ethics of quarantine. And I think many of us are thinking about the ethics right now of the issues that we're kind of confronting in the world. Yes. Um, I think it's called The Last Town on Earth. We did a a quick look up, and I think it's author Thomas Mullen. (laughs) The Last Town on Earth. Yes, you got it. So I highly recommend that. Nice. Yeah, we'll check that out. Since you're a historian. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you think historians might look at this time 
like a hundred years from now? Well, that's hard to say. You know, the flu epidemic of 1918 killed thousands upon thousands of Americans. It killed more people globally than the First World War. So is it something that we just put in our past and move forward? Or is it something that is going to um, have a real impact on this generation? Because it seemed like we were maybe living such manic lifestyles. I know I myself was in New York, Washington, and Toronto the first week in March. And I just think now I'm sitting here in my cabin in northern Minnesota. I don't know, maybe that it's better to stick a little closer to home. Mm. Are things going to change, you know, for us as a society after this epidemic? I don't, I don't know. But I also know people are pretty good at forgetting um, as a historian. Historians are around to remind us of what happened a century ago or decades ago. Yeah, what a job. Like, Remember this. <laughs> Let's learn from this. And gain some- well, and that's why we enjoyed putting together the exhibit at Mille Lacs, the Bosqueg on a Good Day, because that I think that many Ojibwe people today know about the tradition of the jingle dress. They know it's about healing, but they may not have remembered its origins in the global pandemic of a century ago. Wonderful. Well, we very much appreciate your perspective today, both historically and you know, as a Native person. Yeah. Thank you for sharing with us. Sure. My pleasure. Great. Miigwech. Miigwech. You can see the Jingle Dress exhibit that Brenda Child curated at the Malax Indian Museum and Trading Post. It might be open again this summer, depending on what's happening with shelter-in-place orders across the state. Jimmy Gwich, thank you very much for listening to Native Lights Bidapi, where we check in with our Native community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Stay tuned for more episodes. Native Lights is produced by Ampers and is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Gigawabaman. Gigawabaman. <laughs> <laughs>